someone asked me the other day, what is that? Is that a cockroach in your ear? So today, my brothers and sisters, in our responsorial psalm, we hear this refrain, the good news, go out to all the nations and tell the good news. And so today, I've got good news for you all. Actually, I've got three kinds of good news. I've got, first of all, I've got pretty good news. All right, pretty good news. And then I've got fake good news. Okay? So if you'll be patient with me with the fake good news, I promise to end talking about the real good news. And the real good news is really good news, my brothers and sisters. So first, here's the pretty good news. Jesus is preaching, and we've got this gentleman who approaches him and, and puts a question to him, and you, the sense we get is that he's speaking on behalf of many people. And, and I think many people want to know this question. It's inquiring minds want to know. All right, It's very natural. And it's a question that I myself have looked into for many years. He says, Lord, will only a few people be saved? Will only a few people be saved? So... It's going to be crazy if you understood him to be asking the question, Lord, let us know what's the proportion between those who will be saved and those who will be lost. Is it going to be more who are lost and saved or more saved than lost? Okay, so that's a, it's the question of the number of the saved and the lost. Okay, and what is their relative proportion to each other? It, it kind of sounds like that's what he's asking. And so, again, it, based on Jesus' response, you know, Jesus says, well, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be strong enough. Many will, will, will try it, will give it a try, but they won't be able to. Okay? So it seems like Jesus is saying many will be lost. And uh, if that question, if he's answering that specific question, it sounds at least on the surface that he's saying more will be lost than will be saved. But really, we can't go that far. We can't infer that, okay? Many and the majority are two different ideas, or two different concepts, okay? So here's a little thought experiment. If we had two doors, okay, so we got one door on my, on my left and one door on my right, and we've got a thousand people, okay? And 900 of that thousand go to the door on the right, and a hundred of the thousand go to the door on the left. Now, just considering the door on the left, if I were to focus on that door and say, look, there's a hundred people trying to get through that puppy. That's many people trying to get through that door. That's many people. Is it the majority? No, no, right? The majority are trying to get through the right. So many does not equal majority. And although it is true that many theologians across the ages have been of the opinion that more people will be lost than will be saved, whenever they've said that, they've always said it in such a way, I'm kind of paraphrasing, they said, this is my opinion. I'm not making a judgment call as to what Jesus has actually taught. I'm not making a judgment call as to what's actually been revealed. Okay? So although there have been many theologians who have taken that more of a little bit of a dim view on the number of the saves, they've always held that not as a judgment about the deposit of the faith, but they have held it as a personal opinion. And so really, when we dig down deeper into this gospel text, we see that Jesus is not trying to teach us the relative number of the lost 
versus the saved. That's not what he's doing, okay? He's not trying to solve what's fundamentally a personal issue with statistics, okay? What Jesus is doing here is he's putting his audience on guard. He's saying to them, because they're Jewish people, they might have this kind of idea that because of them simply belonging to the chosen people, they've got a free ticket to heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, no, it's not how it works. Salvation is not based on membership, but it's based on living a good life. It's based on following God's commandments. And in fact, as he ends, as our lectionary selection ends off, many people from the Gentile nations, from the north and the south and the east and the west, will come and they will join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish patriarchs, whereas many of the Jews will be excluded. Okay, So that's really what he's doing. He's not teaching us the relative proportion between the lost and the saved. He is not giving us a sort of a, you know, a statistical solution to what really is a vocation, is a calling to give it our all and to put effort into this whole salvation thing. You know, it's very wise to what Jesus is doing. It's very wise. At the end of the day, he does not teach us that proportion. Will there be more saved and lost? Will there be more lost and saved? He doesn't teach us that. Okay, And that's really wise because he knows us. He understands our psychology. If we knew that there were more lost than there would be saved, well, we might kind of feel disheartened. You know, there might be a sort of a despair that might overcome us and really kind of hinder our spiritual walk and our, our, our attempts, actually, to obey the commandments. Now, conversely, if we knew that there were going to be more that were saved than were lost, you know, especially, can you imagine if the Lord gave a proportion? You know, 90% of people are going to be saved, 10% are going to be lost. We probably start looking to our right and our left and start counting people. One, two, three. Okay, out of these ten people in this pew, there's at least one person who's living a worse life than I am. So I'm good to go. I'm pretty good. Okay. You see, it would lead to judgmentalism and comparing, right? And laxity as well, too. That would be another way of sort of sabotaging the whole motivational structure of the spiritual life. And Jesus is trying to motivate us. All right. So that's the pretty good news, that many does not equal majority. So we really don't know. We need to suspend judgment on that exact question as to what's the relative proportion between the lost and the saved. Now indulge me, if you will, and I'm going to talk about the fake good news. All right? The fake good news. If you indulge me on the fake good news, I promise I'll end off with some Really good news. All right. So I've been in academia for more, the majority of years of my life. Okay. And I've got a good thumb on the pulse of academic fads. And there is an academic, there was an academic fad that's bandied about over the past 50 years. And it's a false hope. It's a hollow hope. It basically says we can hope that everybody's going to be saved. All right. Everybody's going to be saved. My brothers and sisters, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. Okay? My mother always used to say that all the time when I was a kid. Yeah, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. I used to think to myself, I didn't know mom had a bridge. Where is this bridge? All right? 
So beware of people coming and selling you, you know, pie in the sky. All right? And in fact, Jesus is teaching us enough so that we do know that that's actually not true. We might not know whether more are lost than are saved or more are saved than are lost, but we do know that not everybody will be saved. Okay? And that's precisely the, the motivation behind Jesus' exhortation to strive. Strive to enter into the narrow gates. For many will attempt, but they will not be strong enough. Okay? So we, we know it has been revealed to us that not everybody is going to be saved. This fake good news is very, very detrimental to the spiritual life because psychologically the effect that it has upon people who hold to this is they say, hey, okay, they might not say it explicitly to themselves, but deeper down they say, ha, huh, you know, everybody's going to be saved, so where's the effort? Okay? Um, where is the energy and the attempt to really give it my all, okay? And if something, it, it doesn't require any kind of effort or sacrifice, if there's no cost to it, at, a very, at an even deeper level, we start to really believe and understand that it has no value, that it has no worth. Something that doesn't cost anything is valueless. And so we start to regard our religion as valueless. That's what happens. And so then, well, what's the wor- what's worth getting up on Sunday morning, trying to make it to church even, you know? So it really is another way that our motivational uh, energies are sabotaged through this this false, this fake good news. And uh, what also too, if you if you understand this thing, this is kind of this kind of pie in the sky uh, ideally uh, ideology, and it's very disconnected from reality. So what human endeavor, what endeavor in our life ever results in 100% success? What endeavor in life involving human freedom and effort ever results in 100% success? I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I was going from eighth grade to my freshman year. I was transitioning from a Catholic school to a public school. The Catholic school did not have a wrestling program. The public school did. I wanted to wrestle. And everybody said, oh, this is really tough. You watched. Everybody who tries out for the wrestling team, they start dropping like flies. And I had a huge disadvantage because all the other guys on the team or who were trying out for the team had years of experience and I had zero experience. So after two weeks, truth be told, it was about a 40% attrition rate. They just, people couldn't handle the workouts. They were too difficult. The training sessions are too difficult. So we've got sports. That's a common experience that many, not everybody who tries out for the team gets it. Okay? Not everybody who goes to college gets the diploma. Not everybody who enters school graduates. Alright? So our human experience gives the lie to this idea that everybody's going to be saved. And uh, this disconnect between reality and between our religious beliefs, what it does is it creates religion uh, it creates a, a sort of a papier-mâché religion, something that rings kind of hollow. Okay, what do you do with it with a papier-mâché doll? It's fun to play with for a little bit, but after a while, you just set it aside and you forget it. Okay, so my brothers and sisters, that's the fake good news. But I'm going to live up to my promise, and I'm going to end with the real good news. And this is really good news. The real good news is that God loves each one of us individually. 
and that he has given us promises, and that he is infinitely merciful and all-powerful. Now that's truth. That's based on what he has taught us, and that is not a hollow hope. That is a hope that rings true. That is a solid, weighty hope. That's the hope that has been given to us along with faith and love in the sacrament of baptism. That's the hope that lives in the baptized faithful members' hearts. For any given person in our life, at an individual basis, we can hope for their salvation. God desires that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, St. Paul teaches. And so for any given person in our life, whether they just died, whether they're alive and they're remembering it, we can hope for their salvation, we can desire it, and we can put the love and the work and the prayer into making that a reality, knowing that something really is at stake. Okay? Something really is at stake. And we can then love that person and work for that person's salvation. And as, for, as far as our own salvation goes, our hope in our own salvation is based on God's promises. We've got him in our corner. He's on our side. He's not against us. He's for us. And so he tells us, follow my commandments. If there's a particular commandment that you can't follow, pray. Ask for help. I'm going to give you the help. Eventually, one way or the other, you're going to get the help if you ask for it. That's an awesome promise. Moreover, we know God is infinitely merciful. And, uh, you know, when it comes to God's mercy, when you think about someone as holy as Mother Teresa, and you take Mother Teresa on one hand and the worst sinner on the other, you know what? In terms of God's mercy, Mother Teresa is no better off than the worst sinner. In terms of God's justice, she's better off. But not in terms of God's mercy, she's no better off. Perfectly equal standing. And it doesn't matter how many sins. You could have all the sins. A man could have all the sins of the world on his back. And if he would just cast himself into the abyss of God's mercy, he would find forgiveness. There's no sin. There's no number of sins. There's no amount of sin that God is not willing in his great mercy to forgive. And he's all-powerful. There's no sin that's stronger than God's power, than the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the world, we will see, as we saw in our first reading, many people coming from all the nations being gathered into God's kingdom. And as Jesus says in our gospel, many will come from the east and the west. And this great multitude of the redeemed, this is the vision of hope that the scriptures provide for us. And it's not a hollow hope. It's not a fake news, good news hope. It's the real hope, my brothers and sisters. And so, I encourage us all, if we have not ever heard of the act, the traditional act of hope, if we've not got it memorized, I encourage us to memorize it. And I'll end with this beautiful act of hope. Oh my God, relying on thy almighty power and upon thy infinite mercy and upon thy promises, I hope to attain the pardon of my sins, the help of thy grace, and the reward of eternal life through the merits of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Redeemer.